Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. Hello, hi, and welcome. I am your host, Emma Gunnar-Wardner, and in my nearly 20-year career as a beauty and health writer, I have interviewed a lot of people, supermodels, entrepreneurs, authors, celebrities, and doctors, and many of these conversations had a real impact on me, and I'd come away feeling inspired, excited, informed, and really empowered, and at the back of my mind, I'd always think, I wish I could just publish the tape so people could really feel that conversation. Well, on this podcast, you get to feel the conversation. I talk with experts, guests, and a few friends who I hope will inspire, inform, and empower you, and maybe also challenge you. Whether you're looking for self-help, self-improvement, beauty advice, health insights, business know-how, or just some good old-fashioned life advice and a bit of a laugh. It's all here. Welcome to the show. My guest in this episode of the podcast is psychotherapist and author Julia Samuel. Julia is a returning guest and in this episode we delve into one of the most valuable resources available to us if we're on a journey of personal development or just trying to understand ourselves better. And if you think about bettering yourself, you might think of today as day one and the better version of yourself that you envisage waiting for you at some point in the future. Have you ever been tempted to do that? Start a new thing, a regime or whatever on a Monday and you're sort of hoping that at the end of all of that effort, whether it's a month, three months, six months, a year, that this great version of yourself that you really pinned all your hopes on is going to be waiting for you at the other end. Well, what will get you to that version of yourself that you're aiming for is consistent effort, learning, behavioral change, any number of things, but it's quite a few shifts. It takes a lot of effort, might take a lot of learning and newness. And a perspective I've never really heard championed and one that Julia is expert in is in understanding who you are based on the information that exists before. And by before, I mean learning the story of your family. Who we are today, this version of ourselves is a combination of the people and experiences who came before us and the effects may be showing up in our present and they may be confusing. So rather than focus ahead on how to change, Julia and I discussed the value in looking back to understand how we got here. And Julie has actually written a fantastic book that explores this in detail with eight families called Every Family Has a Story, How We Inherit Love and Loss. And it really is a fascinating exploration into family relationships and how they fundamentally influence our health and happiness. And it's via these family therapy sessions with eight families that she conducted during lockdown. And this book perhaps wouldn't exist if it wasn't for lockdown because, as she explains, getting, I think it was four generations of one of the families in one place was easier to do virtually than physically. Imagine trying to get four generations in uh, one, one room to do this. So this book examines a range of common issues from separation, leaving home, loss, sense of identity, and shows through these multi-generational conversations how much is passed from one generation to the next and how it shows up and how trying to work on it doesn't involve looking forward, although that might be part of it. It involves a lot of looking back. And I hope if you're a long-time listener of this podcast that you'll know that when addressing mental health or talking about anything that sits in this quote-unquote personal development space it's my intention to arm you with tools not just conversations you can nod along with I'm not going to create a podcast where we're just navel gazing I really hope that there are things that you can take from every episode that will be helpful and Julia has in all her visits to the podcast but perhaps especially with this conversation said shared so many practical tools tips and things you can do today that are absolutely actionable and achievable and for that reason I'm really glad to be sharing this conversation. I really do feel it's the show you could listen to today and learn something from, take something from that could help you make a really profound change you've been looking for. So I'll put the link to the book in the show notes and it's a strong recommend from me. It's very beautifully written as well. Julia's a very skilled writer. It's really a pleasure to read. 
Um, so I'll put the links to the book and all of Julia's social media in the show notes. But it's a warm welcome back to Julia Samuel on The Emma Gunn Show. Hello again. Welcome back to The Emma Gunn Show. Julia Samuel, how are you? I'm very well. Lovely to see you, Emma, and lovely to be invited onto your fantastic show. Oh, well, anytime, you know that. And <laughs> I think whenever I know that I have you on the show, there's an element of real excitement because I really like you. I really respect the work that you do. But there's also a little bit of sort of anxiety around it because... <laughs> You are one of the country's leading psychotherapists and there's an element of feeling very vulnerable when having a conversation with you for fear of giving away too much <laughs> or being seen in a way that maybe, because I feel as though you can see the matrix of human beings. I, I mean, I think all of us can. Don't you, we all kind of look at each other and are trying to make, work out what's going on with each other all of the time. Um, so I think we do it sitting on the tube, looking at each other's shoes or, you know, what you're reading or who you're talking to. And we do it like we are now kind of face to face. So I don't think I have any other special skills <laughs> than you. I, I probably know how to say what I'm thinking in a way that maybe you don't. But I think all of us are working out the whole time what on earth's going on between me and this person or me and myself. Yes. OK, yeah, no, you're right. We do. It's, it's reading cues. I very interestingly had an incredible woman on recently who's written a book all about cues she's called Vanessa Van Edwards I might have to send you the link and it's exactly that it's reading things for example when you're speaking to somebody just take a second to glance down and see where their feet are pointing because that will let you know whether they're engaged with you or whether they are looking to leave or they have their attention directed at someone else my feet are in front of me (laughs) (laughs) good that's good to know so um you've been on the show before and we have talked about all sorts of things. The, uh, the first time you came on was right at the beginning of lockdown. Actually, I think you might have yeah. been one of the first people that I recorded with via Zoom. And we talked about how to be adaptable, how to adapt to change, how to pivot and not get knocked from side to side. And then obviously we had these two years that were really revelatory for you. I don't know whether this book, could this book have existed without lockdown? I don't think I'd have asked everybody to meet me on Zoom and I would never have got, so I had multi-generation families in this um, book and I would never have got them into a room with me at the same time because it's such a logistic um, problem. Mm. So I don't, I'm not sure that it would have done there. And I remember when you and I met, you talked about family therapy. You talked about, um, it, it's the hard work. It's because it's perhaps is it the most confronting type of work? Well, I think um, the number it, when you're in a group, in a kind of therapeutic group, the positive experiences are multiplied by the number of people in the group, as are the negative experiences, because they're witnessed by people that you care about. And so when you show an aspect of yourself and actually you discover they haven't all jumped on you and are furious with you and hate you for that aspect of yourself. That can be profoundly curative and vice versa. Mm. One thing I noticed about the, and listeners, obviously I'll put the link to the book in the show notes, but one thing I noticed is the way that you write the setup of the family. Every page starts with, is it ginogram? How do you say it? Ginogram. Yes. Yeah. Um, And there's a description about the family, about where they came from, about the dynamics and what have you. And actually, when I was reading it, I thought, this is almost like Bronte-like. And the picture is being painted so perfectly in a few short paragraphs that I have such a clear picture. And that speaks a lot to the the cues, the nonverbal, as well as what they tell you, that you're able to piece together this really detailed picture of a family dynamic quite quickly. I mean, that's so lovely to hear. I wanted to, I mean, I write how I write, but my aim when I'm writing is to bring the reader into the room with me so that you feel like you're beside me observing Mm. the therapy session and that you see the family, you know the family, you can virtually kind of smell the family. And in doing so, you recognise yourself 
in aspects of yourself through the family mm. and so that you use the witnessing of being with them a way of witnessing yourself so you get to know aspects of yourself that you may not have noticed before or you may not be aware of mm. is that transference is that what the the term is well transference is when I put on to you um uh my experience that I haven't recognized for myself so it's slightly different right but I know that it's close (laughs) okay okay nine out of ten not ten out of ten um so when always (laughs) ten so when we've spoken in the past I think a lot of the the things that we've talked about have been about the individual which is why this feels like such a, a change but but a good one because and I've talked a lot on the show with psychotherapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, mental health professionals, and it's all about the work that one can do for oneself. And this really does open up the, the fact that there's a, it's not, a, not always about moving forward and about the future. Sometimes it's really valuable to interrogate the past in able to inform a better future. That's a lovely way of putting it. And I mean, there are two things about what you're saying is that I, and I think most of us kind of know that we are individual, but we are wired to be connected and that we are interdependent and that our well-being and confidence in ourselves and happiness largely is built on the the quality of the relationships we have with the people we care about. And that may be the family we've made, not by blood, or it may be the family that we have that is by blood. And so that has a huge impact on on how we thrive in life and how we kind of survive difficulties and lockdowns and illness and and unhappinesses. But also, what was the second bit you said there was something you said about uh, interrogating the past to inform the future and also our present is always influenced by the past so when we have um, a knowledge of the past and how it is presenting itself in our present and that can be our own past but also the thing I'm uh, looking at in the book is the multi-generation past so one of the things I say in the book is you know you may be saying to yourself why am I failing what's wrong with me and I think a better question is to look up and see where have I come from mm. what are the untold secrets stories um, from the past that have not been dealt with and the things that the pain of the past that hasn't been dealt with passes down to the next generation until someone's prepared to feel the pain. And that if we do that in our generation for ourselves, we protect our future generations. Can you can you feel the pain without confronting it? Can you unconsciously or subconsciously know that you're working within a framework that's causing you pain? I don't think so. I mean, maybe there's someone out there who who would say that they can. But I sort of think it's a combination of awareness, the story we're telling ourselves, the emotions that we're feeling and can name while we're telling that story, and then how we express it and how it connects out in the world and then how that comes back and comes back to us. So I think it's a reciprocal process of sort of internally being available expressing it and and then seeing it from a different perspective so that when you are aware of what's going on in you and you voice it and you sort of hear it differently when you voice it than when it's ruminating in your head that gives you a different lens on yourself and when you have a different perspective on what is going on in you that changes your relationship with that and changes your behavior. And actually, I've heard you say as well, uh, one thing that you've you've done is sometimes voice journal. Now, for regular listeners, you'll know we've talked about journaling before. It's not something I can stick to. And as soon as I heard you talk about, just make a daily voice note and talk it out just into thin air. 
because you'd be amazed at how much is revealed in those notes. Because here there is something that happens between just the ruminating, you know, what I call, and I've said to you before, that shitty committee that just goes on round and round in your head, to actually saying the words out out loud and hearing them, it it just uh, kind of wakes you up to what you're actually saying. Because when it's so kind of cruel and toxic in your head, you idiot, you fool, or you know, you're never going to succeed in this. But then saying it out loud, you're never going to succeed in this. There's a kind of, oh my goodness, that that is what I'm actually saying to myself. And then you can kind of turn to it with more compassion and hopefully it can change your attitude. I read a quote online when I um, uh, read the book, I thought, right, I'm going to just Google and see what comes up when you type in family, family therapy and what have you. One... Oh, good. I never did that. <laughs> I should have done. And one quote that jumped out at me was, a dysfunctional family is a family with more than one person in it. <laughs> what did your reaction to that? <laughs> well, I think you can have a dysfunctional person. But um, no, I mean, I think that is interesting. I mean, my kind of take on functional and dysfunctional families is that we all move on a spectrum of functioning and dysfunctioning depending on what is happening in our lives and that it's points of big change it could be someone's died or we've lost our job or we're living in a pandemic that the external pressures put pressure on the family and so the kind of pre-existing fault lines get bigger Mm. Um, and that you know, my certainly my experience is that the majority of families are doing the best they can and, and kind of with what they know and what they can do. I think there is a section of families, which I hope is small, where the intention isn't good, that there is many more negative um, expressions than positive where you're the connection is very kind of unpredictable, fragmented and broken between everybody. And those are properly dysfunctional families. And that that does real harm, but they're very unlikely to come and get help, unfortunately. Yeah. And I was going to ask you about the help. You did, you had multi-generations. So I think, was it five was the most generations you had on one call? And I wondered, is there a generation that usually reaches out to Julia Samuel? Is there, is it the youngest who usually, because we live in a world now where talking about mental health is far more open. Is it the younger generation who tend to say, I think this is a conversation we need to have? I think that's so interesting. So I did a couple of the eight um, case studies it was the young people in the families who said to the parents listen this is not working we need help and we need to sort this out and so they were the energy and they had a kind of fresh perspective and were often the innovators of how to meet the difficulties that they were all having with new ideas um, rather than following you know we all have a sort of track that we go down it's like this is how I think and this is who I am. And the young had much more um, uh, freedom and and creativity in in thinking about how they could solve the family problems. But, you know, yes, and the, you know, most of the people that come and see me are kind of in their 40s, 50s. I see some young people, but it's unlikely to be the older generation. Mm. Um, where, you know, they were brought up with much less mental health awareness, where it wasn't available. And the belief of sort of being stoic and having a stiff upper lip was all that they knew. Um, But so I was really both kind of humbled and grateful that so many older generation members did join me. Um, in the families and gave me such wisdom and insight. And I think one of the things that isn't kind of recognized is the power and importance of the grandparents of the older generation to influence families for good or ill. And the the ones that I work with had immense power um, and really was so helpful. So it's almost like the youngest and the oldest were the ones that really shifted the, the middle pe- the middle members of the family. Interesting. 
So they're the ones who are able to create the momentum. What they said made the biggest impact, perhaps. Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, you, it, it, there isn't really a hierarchy, but they, I think we often dismiss in this country, the older generation, you know, that they're a problem for us to look after and, you know, they're going to be a burden, that kind of thing. But actually what I found is that they had a lot of wisdom, but but also this thing that they had so much influence and power, far more mm-hmm. than I kind of fully realised. I didn't really have three of my grandparents had died before I was born and my only grandmother, I didn't kind of know personally that well. So I had never realized how, how amazing a grandparent can be an active kind of participant in your life. Mm. And it's interesting, this older generation as well, because for anyone listening, who's thinking, well, how I couldn't even imagine getting my family into a therapy room, be it on zoom or in person. But it struck me that this idea of what you were saying about the old generation being stoic and how it does feel sometimes disjointed. It feels like there's a little bit of a clash at the moment culturally between this older generation who kind of put up and shut up, don't don't complain about things, just get on with it. And the younger generation who are far more comfortable and encouraged to interrogate and vocalise and express their feelings and it really is, it, they're two fundamentally different viewpoints that are completely at odds and actually kind of pit one generation against the other. Yeah, I think that I think that really can be true. And I think what was amazing about Zoom is that it's much less threatening. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, like the Brian Francis family, there's this wonderful grandmother patience. Um, and the, there'd been a rift with the, her children after the death of her granddaughter, um, which often happens, you know, a very significant death out of time can actually splinter a family because nobody knows how to manage it. And patients who was very bad with technology, I mean, I saw up her nose, I saw her lap shade, um, but she was in her home sitting in her armchair, just talking to her family members mm. with me facilitating it. And that was very unthreatening. Um, and she really felt that she understood aspects of them that she hadn't realized before. So she was very grateful for having done it. Um, and actually all of the older members had been a little bit nervous beforehand but discovered it's actually just having conversations and with someone who facilitates it that makes it less threatening that you don't fall into old squabbles and storming out that with me there I keep them safe in a way and I mediate it so that they can actually be heard mm-hmm. and the big thing that made the difference in every one of these very diverse case studies was that when every person heard the other member's story in a way that they hadn't heard it before. It had expanded their understanding of themselves and their whole family. And that that was very strengthening. Mm -hmm. You know, when we have this, again, like this sort of pathway of this is who I am and this is, I'm the clever one in my family or I'm the difficult one in my family and they're this person and they're that person. We have these very rigid kind of beliefs But when you kind of have a much broader understanding of each other, you have a much more robust connection with each other because it isn't kind of limited by uh, those limited beliefs. It's a little bit binary, isn't it? You can understand your role within a family as one thing and your relationship with someone else in the family as one thing. And I think what I took away from the book, one of the many things I took away was... um, how important it is to have a dialogue with people in your family and start conversations that perhaps are out of the groove that you're used to. Exactly. That's a lovely way of saying And thank you. (laughs) And that means, um, and also talking to the older generation now for me, but it's it's just me and my parents. So I don't have that, uh, the grandparents around. But I was thinking, gosh, if they had been, what would I have asked my grandmother? What would I have asked my grandfather? And what would I have been seeking to learn? So I think, do you have to have an objective when you start these conversations about where you would like to get to? No, and I actually think 
they're much more likely to be expansive and open if you don't have a kind of set agenda. But by having, I think, you know, sitting around the kitchen table over a curry is a good way of talking. But asking about, tell me about my grandmother. What was she like? Where did she live? Do you know how she celebrated her birthday? Do you know how she met my grandfather? There's a something called a do you know scale at the back of the book. Mm-hmm. I put in quite a few appendices. And, you know, the more you kind of know about the stories of your parents and your grandparents, the more secure and grounded you feel. So you could just ask, you know, curi- be curious about the life that your mum had. Like what happened on your birthday? What was your favourite birthday? You know, what was the present you always wanted that you got? Or what was your favourite food? Or I also think walking and talking is a really mm. good way of communicating in a family because you're not eyeballing each other. You can, you're in rhythm sort of walking along and you can have silences. But I would start with, you know, something like I was wondering about myself that, you know, I know that I love um going to the theatre and I was thinking gosh where did I get that from mum did you take me to the theatre you know that kind of thing so that you just learn more to fill in the pieces of the jigsaw of who you are from the stories they tell you that reminds me of and it's one of my one of the greatest memories I have weirdly is when I went to journalism college I came back after the first term and I was telling my family how it was going. And I said, you're not going to believe this. I'm excellent at shorthand. And my mother said, oh, I didn't want to say anything, but so was I. And so was your grandmother. How amazing. <laughs> and I didn't, and it was really lovely to find out there was a legacy or something or an inherited skill. I really loved knowing that. Exactly. And that gave you like, whoa, I know where that came from. Yeah. And that's a kind of, that piece of that jigsaw completely slotted into place, not kind of moving it around, trying to find a place where it fits. What if you, That's a lovely thing. Yeah, it, it, it's still, when I think about it, I'm like, oh, it felt like such a light bulb sort of firework moment in my memories. Um, I think a, a lot of that, by the way, is wanting to belong. And I think one of the key things in our family is the need and the and the necessity to belong to a group of people who who, um, support us in the tough and and the good times but that we you know have our tribe and in a way when you're saying that about your mum and your grandmother being good at shorthand that's like huh this is my tribe this is Mm. this is where I belong and it was just knowing well I'm probably going to be good at those sorts of things and like yeah. Wordle, Wordle, for example, my mum and are I you are brilliant. Ish, yeah. I have good runs, then I have some crappy ones. Um, Do you compete with your mum? No, I don't want to beat her, but it's good work. But if we get it on the same, if we get the same score, I'm pleased. <laughs> Why don't you want to beat her? I don't know. I just, I, I'm, yeah, I don't necessarily want to beat her. I did get it in two the other day. I was very wow. yeah. yeah um but yeah no not competitive in that way with her I don't know, nice. that, what does that say Julia I can see I mean it could I could go down about 15 routes <laughs> right okay well we shan't then I'll take okay. that for a private <laughs> session um okay. so with this in mind because this feels like a very very big piece of the self-help the self-improvement the personal development story And it feels like, uh, and this is bringing the family into it and looking at the family dynamic. And I chatted to a couple of friends about this. And I said, before you went to university or left home and started in the workplace, did you think your family was normal? And pretty much everyone said, pretty much to a point. I knew there were some things, but I thought that fundamentally we were normal. And I would say the same thing. And then you go out into the world And you realise that perhaps the operating system, which is your family, perhaps isn't necessarily compatible with a lot of what goes on in the real world. And that you maybe you haven't got some of the social skills or you haven't picked up on certain things because you just didn't, weren't exposed to those things when you were in your family. And I wondered if it is quite normal for people to think that their family is normal and just completely average. And then to almost feel and begin to learn things about themselves and realize that maybe there are some issues that need dealing with 
Yes, I think what is familiar, what you know, is what is your normal. And then as your understanding of other people in the world expands, your understanding of maybe, as you say, your operating system, it didn't, it, it missed out aspects of say, how to deal with conflict or how to, what to look for um, in a job. You know, what is the criteria? in your fact you know you, you you have one operating system where it may be that your mum and dad say just as long as you have a secure income that's all that matters you know just get a job and from learning from other people you may learn that I want you to follow your passion I want you to find a job that means a lot to you that you love that you aligns with who you are that kind of thing mm. and so then you develop a new relationship with you and work from other people and I I think as parents, we, we, you know, children and young people learn from what they observe. So they learn from what your parents, um, not just say to you, but how they behave. And they can't really change that, you know, so they may have come from a background where having a job is the, is the most important thing, because that was the only necessity in order to survive. There were no there was no luxury to mm. follow a passion, um, just to sort of follow that thread. And we learn from what our parents do and observing them. And then I think it is our job as adults in the world to develop and be curious and creative, you know, as a learning machine human being about now that I'm 23, 24, 25, how am I going to go about in my world? So I don't think it's about looking back and saying, well, you didn't give me a good operating system. I think it's take the operating system that you've got and then develop it and build on it so it fits with you. And that, you know, from like my second book, life is changed, that the more adaptive and um, uh, skills, the more adaptive we are and the more we have the kind of capacity to adapt and respond to, to what life throws at us, the more likely we are to thrive. Mm, yes, the more likely we are to thrive. And I think one of the things as well, obviously it's in the title, uh, is the how we inherit love and loss and this idea of trauma being passed down. And again, I wonder if uh, one can be aware that they are carrying a trauma or whether it has to be pointed out to them and by that, I mean, for example, I, I think that I am quite, I'm quite hardwired to be anxious. I'm always, I'm quite, if, if I'm not in a great mental headspace, I am incredibly jumpy, but I don't have anything in my backstory and my family that would necessarily uh, explain that. So to me, I'm like, well, maybe it's epigenetic, maybe I've inherited or what have you. But it's only when I started having therapy and started to analyze these things and I was oh yeah I am anxious and I'm not quite sure where it came from but it's, there's definitely something there and I have these heightened responses I tend to be in a heightened state of alert quite a lot um and it was only in realizing that and realizing it didn't start with me perhaps that was quite revelatory yeah I did you get that from the book I got that well, you had it before I, I understood that from therapy but I saw that pattern sort of coming through so that, I mean, I do think that's a really important insight because you can, whilst you have a very strong heightened response and that you're kind of more vigilant than others and on alert more, you might undermine yourself and think, you know, why am I like this? Why am I so sensitive and what's wrong with me? And, you know, I'd be curious on your behalf to find out from your parents what are the untold stories of maybe moving countries, um, wars, losses, suicides, children dying, whatever it is that haven't been voiced mm. that could have been passed down epigenetically to you. So for those that don't know about epigenetics, it's there are two ways of, of transferring um, trauma. One is behavioural. So that, as I said before, children learn from what they observe. So if you have parents who have a heightened response to, say, a dog barking or food or um, 
other people, then you it's the defenses that people use to block the trauma that does them harm. And you learn those defenses. Mm -hmm. It's it's not the trauma itself that does the harm. It's our response to the trauma that we can't. We don't know how to deal with the levels of distress that it ignites in our body. And then in the other pathway, which is um, through birth, is that if you the research is shown, Rachel Yehuda in Israel, but many others have shown that unprocessed trauma in the womb for a baby gives the baby heightened levels of cortisol. So when the baby is born, that cortisol then gives them a heightened response to any external threat, sight, sound, touch or smell. Um, and they, they know that happens for kind of two or three generations. But it is also not inevitable. Oh, and that's the thing with all this, it's not always. So there will be people who um, that, that it, they would may have had a, a parent who had, you know, a devastating trauma and they are not traumatized. So nothing is inevitable. But if you do have it, I, what I think is really useful is trying to find out what happened and what the stories are, having a narrative. Mm. Because I think the story we tell ourselves about who we are and where we've come from influences our relationship with ourselves. And then that influences, when the story changes, that influences how we behave and our outcome. And I guess it would stand to reason then that the generation who perhaps had the put up and shut up mentality, just kind of get on with it. And they've buried those feelings and they are trauma existing within them would pass them on not inevitably, but it would it would be manifesting in this generation who are going, I'm freaking out, I've got anxiety, I'm depressed, and who are more comfortable talking about their mental health. But as I'm sure you know this, mental health diagnoses are absolutely on the rise and I think set to continue given what we've been through in the last couple of years. Yeah. And um, in, to some extent, we now have the luxury to talk about our mental health, that when you're actually under threat, you know, if you look at the people of Ukraine, they're not at the moment going to be, their first priority isn't to deal with the trauma, it's to deal with the actual threat of being murdered and killed and getting food on the table and surviving. And like my parents who fought in the Second World War and my grandparents who fought in the First World War and survived, they, they had no alternative but to survive and, in their case, multiply, because that was a kind of pri priority after the First World War because so many people had been killed. And so it is only now that we have both the psychological knowledge and, in some, to some extent, the luxury that we can think about our mental health that we can begin to explore and name it. So I, I do think that's import important to kind of acknowledge and the other thing is that that generation, you know, some people say, well, I mean, look, they got on with it. They did well. And look at us now. We've got, every, you know, one in four people has a, a um, mental health diagnosis and young people are, are also really um, having hugely difficult, you know, anxiety and depression. What's wrong with them? And I would say, that it wasn't discovered that our parents and grandparents had all those um, difficulties because it wasn't named, because mm -hmm. they couldn't. But it doesn't mean that they didn't exist. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's interesting. Absolutely. And I, I do think it's a good thing. I had um, Dr. Ramani Devajila on the show recently, and she is a psychologist in the States, and her area of expertise is narcissism, which is fascinating. Wow. And, yeah. yeah fascinating and she uh, she's also uh, the psychologist that Jada Pinkett Smith and Will Smith use on their red table talk so that's interesting um <laughs> she talked about the way in which even me 44 years old when I hear about younger people in my industry and media media is a it's sort of a strange entity in many ways if I am speaking to friends who are employing people and they say, oh, so-and-so's asked for a personal day because of their mental health, there is a part of me that rolls oh. my eyes and thinks, mm. oh, for goodness sake, because I know that back in the day when I was 20-something and desperate and a million girls would do my job, I would go to work however ill I was 
and it just didn't matter. It was just like, you just do it. And something she said to me was, yes, but are you kind of dealing with any of that stuff that you suppressed in your 20s now? Like 20 years on, are you having to unpick some of that and deal with any PTSD? Because actually the generation who are saying, no, I need a mental health day, they're probably not. And that might be a good thing. And and that's 100% right. And also early intervention, the earlier you deal with your difficulty, the better your outcomes. Because not because of the difficulty, but the embedded resistance and defences that you develop to cope with the difficulty are much harder to loosen and unfurl and release yourself from, Um, you know, the more ingrained they are. So, I mean, I think that's a really good point. I mean, I think about a mental health day, I kind of wonder, well, what are you going to do on a mental health day? Because really, it's an ongoing process. So you you may have anxiety, and hopefully, you'll talk to a friend, and you'll go for a walk, and you'll do some meditation. But I, 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 I think what I, what, I mean, what I hope for young people and all of us is that each of us kind of works out what I need and what are the tools, what is the toolkit that I need to keep myself on the straight and narrow. Mm. And that what we're looking for within our lives is some kind of balance and some kind of way of if we get completely thrown off kilter by something that's happened, that we have the people in our lives to connect to and the coping mechanisms within ourselves to connect to and use that we can recalibrate ourselves. So this idea of just having a day and being in kind of isolation, I don't think works. I think this is an ongoing process, um, which you really do know. And part of yours is doing this podcast where you learn so much, where you expand your understanding of how people operate in the world, expands your understanding of how you operate in the world. You know, like with narcissism, you look like you'd been fed. It's like, I really wanted to, I needed that meal. (laughs) oh yes and boy did I enjoy it um (laughs) yeah but actually that speaks to something really interesting and something I struggle with sort of creating content in the space I do because sometimes people say oh you create a wellness podcast and I bristle try not to show it but probably do and the reason I bristle is because I observe that mental health has become this identity it is almost like a destination and oh I've been diagnosed with anxiety and there's this this bizarre narrative at the moment of I am this and therefore the world needs to to change and treat me differently because of my anxiety or whatever label it is that it might be and I hope that what I do with this podcast because I hope it's what I've done with myself is and I said this to you before When I got a diagnosis of anxiety and depression, it was as though the lights came on. There was a big red arrow above my head saying, you are here. And I could see the map. And it was so wonderful because I knew I could find the way out. I didn't want to stay in that place. It was about, okay, I know my coordinates. And with the help of mental health professionals, they're going to direct me to a safe safe place. But there does seem to be this culture of once you identify that you might be a bit anxious that 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 can't be changed but it can can't it completely and and that is my concern that first of all my concern is that we pathologize feelings so that if you're worried you know for a few days you say you have anxiety if you have low mood you say that you have depression and that once you give yourself that label that's a very limiting um kind of self self condemnation in a way um so first of all i think we kind of will all have lots of feelings all of the time and that we need to know within ourselves how to manage those feelings and that in a day you can have 5 10 20 different wafts of weather that come through you where you feel very nervous before doing a podcast where you feel full of fury because something you've seen online or very worried because of the Ukraine, you know, all of that. And so that we need to find ways, like I said before, of managing those for ourselves and not pathologizing it. And that, of course, there are people who have 
real anxiety and real depression that they need a diagnosis for, which, as you say, is very useful as a portal of how to shift themselves from that mental landscape to a mental landscape where they have don't have anxiety or depression and that they use it as a way to shift themselves from that place. Um, and I agree with you. I, I think if people start giving themselves these identities of I'm anxious and I'm depressed and that that becomes very rigid, it's like what I say about everything. Rigidity is the opposite of growing and thriving through your life. It, when it becomes fixed and your your kind of only place to be, you block your capacity to expand and grow from different understandings. So you limit your emotional experience and what you can take in and therefore who you are. And that becomes quite brittle. Mm. Um, and and as you say, limiting, you have a, a, a more kind of febrile relationship with yourself and then the world. But there is something quite safe making about having an identity. And I want to broach this without exposing too much, but I definitely felt when I started therapy and started to understand me better and the things that were sort of unraveling and how I'd got to the place that I was, I did feel as though when I went back into certain situations and the family being one, that there I was sort of growing and changing, but back in that environment, it, it was almost as though the, the growth and the change wasn't welcome or not welcome is probably not the right word, but it was almost like, well, this is my role in the family. And so I'm adapting and changing right now, but that doesn't fit. And that actually felt quite turbulent. And I wonder whether that's quite common when people do go on this path of personal development or self-help or trying to overcome issues that they feel they're facing, that actually their safe places for a while at least become um, uncomfortable. I mean, I think that is very common because you will be taking a different version of yourself, you know, into your family and they will kind of not know you in the way that they did. And also, you know, our memory is so powerful that when you're in your family kitchen, the sight, the sound, the smell of being in that place, eating the food you ate when you were six years old, will also be pushing your buttons. So there's a kind of confusion of the child in you at home and this new version of you that has a greater understanding. And in some ways, the power of my book, I think, shows that the power of family all learning together as a group, mm. you can get so much work done in really quite a short time. I mean, none of those families did I see for more than eight sessions. I mean, that's less than a Netflix series, you know. So, and that when you're all in a room together, understanding each other together and hearing each other, that that is incredibly powerful and restorative. The, the piece that I want to add about the mental health um, is that, you know, I think it's really helpful and important and life changing that we can now have these conversations about mental health and that allowed you, for instance, to go and get the treatment that changed your life and that without them, um, people would really, really suffer. And of course, there is still stigma. There is still a sense of weakness. Um, when you do. So I just wanted to make clear that I am, you know, as a mental health professional, I am very pro having, raising awareness and removing the stigma from mental health. It's just when I think, uh, well, that's, I don't need to say anything. Well, you I think, cut that yeah, no, but I think it's static. I think it's the staticness of some of the approaches whereas I think what you do is it's it's there's momentum there's movement but this idea of my mental health diagnosis is a static thing it's unmoving that locks me locks yes. me in that place yes and so now hi everyone I've got anxiety therefore can you please be nicer to me like I have a bit of a contentious issue with the be kind movement because I think what actually it means is be kind brackets to me it's not actually particularly uh, as magnanimous as it might sound and that that's where I think as with all messaging there will always be a little bit of what have you but what you do is it's progress and it's work I don't think you've ever sugarcoated the fact that this is work and it can be really difficult and it can be really confronting tiring exhausting draining 
but what's on the other side is so worth the effort. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, from my first book and through all of my books, what we know is when we're in the kind of comfort of familiarity, we stay the same. Mm. And it's the discomfort of change, you know, a bit like you describing after therapy being in your family's kitchen, there is a discomfort in that. And hopefully that discomfort will be a kind of energy that everybody feels and expands and changes in response to you so that you're met as you are now rather than as you were. Because pain is the agent of change. Pain as in discomfort at one end and ah, can't bear it at the other end. Because that is what forces us to confront these aspects of ourselves that otherwise just keep on rolling through. Um, and it is the, the, the force for change is mm. discomfort or, or pain. Um, and the key is to support ourselves through the pain, through being in how we are in relation to ourselves, being kind to ourselves, and through being in relationship to others. I mean, we really need people. People need people. We need them when we're happy and all is going well. And we really need them when we're in a crisis or in a kind of big point of change. If someone's listening to this and they're thinking, right, I don't think I'm making the most of my family and I think I need to get to know them better. And I think that what will be on the other side of implementing some of Julia's tactics will be really helpful. But what if you have those family members who don't want to pull at that thread? Because I asked when I was canvassing friends, I said, could you ask, could you do any of these things? So the 12 touchstones at the back of the book, I was like, could you do this with your family? Could you do that? And there was a lot of, "Mm, yeah, but maybe, or they wouldn't like that. Is there a way to ease your family members into opening up where they may previously have shut down? Like there are definitely topics that I just won't bring up with my family, for example, because I know that I will feel the immediate bristle of of the shutdown. And so I just think, so there's no point me trying to, because I'm only going to cause pain. And I don't want to cause the people that I love pain by making them revisit something that might be painful. And I guess that was a similar response that I got from my friends. So if someone's listening to this, they're thinking, I want this too. I want what Julia's, I want to pick up what Julia's laying down. Are there any ways that you can help people ease their way into this? Yeah, I mean, (laughs) it's a bit self-serving. I would advise to read my book because I think you'll learn a lot about yourself and your family, which will give you a lot of insight about how to approach your family. But I do think it's much more about having the sideways conversations, the curious conversations um, that are less threatening, finding out the stories from your parents' childhoods, from how they met, the things that I talked about before that can often flow into other stories. You know, if anyone says to me with that kind of look on the side of the, their head on the side saying, how are you? You know, tell me about the thing that is really upsetting me. Of course, I'm going to shut down because mm-hmm. nobody wants to go straight to pain. But I think, as a, I think we can also model it. So I think if you wanted to have the beginnings of a conversation with your family about difficult things. I would start by talking about myself. Like I'm so interested because I um, was thinking about this and that, and that led me to feel this and I discovered that. So own your own story and in modeling it, they may then want to come in with their story and start small. And also that thing of, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day, bite-sized chunks, small steps of change, of interaction, of being more open, maybe finding a little bit more about their stories, what they've inherited, where they've come from. And that inch by inch, you then may be able to get closer to those untold stories. Mm. Um, I mean, I think a really good way is doing a genogram. So if you go to my book, you can, and you can make your own genogram and start get with a big piece of paper with your mum and dad and ask, you know, the names of people when they were born, when they died, where they lived, who they were married to, what type of person were they? 
And that is very unthreatening. And people mm. really love that. And so, but then you can see patterns that mm. happen. Um, and being curious about that as a family can be really interesting. I just sort of wanted to add this because I think it is interesting and it also uh, perhaps will uh, motivate somebody to take action today when they listen to this show. But I didn't know my maternal grandmother very well. My paternal grandparents died before I was born. And we'd visit semi-regularly to see my uh, grandparents, but I didn't, there wasn't a particularly close bond or what have you. And it was when I went to my grandmother's funeral and the eulogy was being read out and I thought, and I was listening to her career, was it eulogy? Anyway, they're talking about... Um, yeah, the eulogy. Yeah. yeah. Um, talking about her career and the things that she'd done. And I suddenly just thought, oh my God, she sounds awesome. I knew none of this. Like it was really interesting to me, but most of it was new information. And it was that regret of thinking, I, I will never have that conversation now. I have yeah. to hear it from a third party. Yeah. And the other thing I think is if you do still, and you're listening, still has grandparents that are alive, is go and see them without your mum and dad. You know, see them on your own and also record it on your voice notes. So mm. here we go, voice notes again, because <laughs> it's lovely hearing their voice, telling the stories um, about when they were young, when they dated, what were the happiest moments, um, how did they get their first job? Um, you know, ask about whichever parent they're the parent of, you know, their childhood. Those are really lovely things that you can kind of hold on to, but will give you insight into yourself and um, your family. When I originally thought about family therapy, I thought, oh gosh, um, someone's going to feel bad. Is is expressing how you feel going to make another family member feel responsible? Is a parent going to say, oh gosh, I didn't mean to, or assume that anything that is going wrong with you is because of something they did wrong when you were growing up? But actually, so you're blaming that it's full of guilt. Yes, and I'm guessing that that probably is that kind of the first taste of what begins to happen when people begin this new kind of dialogue, that it can be fraught with those sorts of feelings? I think that's the fear that blocks maybe the parents um, having therapy with their children. It's like they don't want to be confronted with their failures and mm. they, they don't want to be um, feel so guilty and bad about what they didn't get right. Um but what I think they discover, and I, my clients discovered um, that I work with for this book, was that there was so much love underneath all that fear. Mm. And that the love and the connection and the wanting to get it right, even when we get it wrong, was far greater than anything else. And that in itself was incredibly curative for everybody. But also... Being in a group together, there was a lot of humor because, you know, and humor when you laugh together, that is the place that you all know you're actually in the same place at the same time. So, you know, in the Thompson family, there was a three generations of women and the daughter was going to university and the grandmother would tell a story and everyone burst out laughing. And that kind of released a lot of tension but also she talked about her mother who'd been dead for 20 years and how that grandmother lived in her and lived in her granddaughter that, you know, we live on in each other forever after we've died. You know, the person has died, but the memories influence and shape us forever. And that when we have the opportunity to hear them from each other, that that's incredibly bonding mm. and confidence building Um and that you just understand yourself and each other better. And so the kind of relationship is softer and easier. There's less fear of getting it wrong, of upsetting your mum. Or, you know, there's this thing of like, we really know each other. I, you know, I don't need to worry about upsetting her because there's enough knowledge and trust. It's the trust, the love and the trust in the relationship overcomes the fear and the um guilt mm. and it's I wanted to sort of go back to something I said earlier about the operating system 
and about thinking that your family was normal until you went out into the outside world and maybe saw other families and different dynamics. And then this sort of swinging to thinking, oh, well, does that mean that my family was bad or wrong or not right? Or so all the negative words. And I think what I'm learning from you and in the book is the it 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 it's not blame that stays in that similar place. It becomes acceptance and knowing and knowledge. And actually it comes to a place of peace, even with stories where. I mean, even the first story in the book where somebody learned something really quite drastic and sort of changes his everything. His dad wasn't his biological dad. Yeah. yeah. Oh, didn't want to do a spoiler, but there you go. It's, okay. still, it's still worth reading. It's still reading. It's yeah. a really excellent one. But that actually could have been the dynamite that blew everything up irrevocably. But it actually isn't. It becomes glue. And I think that's really important is that even revisit is visiting these difficult things, exposing these difficult things actually can be the glue that binds you together, not the thing that tears you apart. That is beautifully put, Emma. Will you please be my press person? That is exactly <laughs> it. That it's it's the lies and the secrets that tear us apart, not the truth, however difficult the truth is. Mm. And the more we have a kind of compassionate understanding that families are messy and chaotic and they have fights and they make mistakes and they have a lot of fun and they really love each other and all the spectrum of being human happens within a family but where there is the you know love in all of its forms the love in in expressing love in receiving love in stepping forward in stepping stepping back in action that that we allow the full um, panoply of being a human being within our family then that is incredibly strengthening as a family it's wh- it's when we try and protect by not telling the truth protect ourselves or protect each other um, and of course the fear of being criticized that that things are much much less um, robust mm. What I enjoy so much about what you do is that there are always things that kind of sow seeds and then embed permanently. So things that you've said to me previously or things that I've read of yours uh, now indelibly printed onto my brain and will will die with me. <laughs> but one of the, one <laughs> that's of the, lovely. Yeah, Who maybe, knew? Eh? <laughs> maybe not for uh, maybe not for the jacket. Um, but one of the things you do at the end of the book is you talk about the twelve touchstones. And the thing I enjoy most about this is if, in fact, you turn to page 251st when you pick up the book, you have a few pages that lay out these, it's 12, isn't it? 12 touchstones. Yeah, 12 touchstones. For the well-being of family, yeah. That are so, just a couple of paragraphs each that are so actionable, but actually just get the cogs whirring. And it's things like you're saying about with the sideways questions, with the curiosity. It's about not thinking, right, I've got to deal with this. I'm going to bulldoze it head Charge. on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's all of these different angles and aspects that you can just apply, even things like having fun, make time for fun with your family and learn how to fight with them. I thought that one was really interesting. Fighting is good, not bad. And yet so yeah. many of us avoid conflict. I avoid conflict. I find fight really, really difficult. Horrible. Um, and but you know what I've learned actually from my children is that we we when we fight productively and we you know this idea in family that you will always fight where you're closest, you love most, you hate most, you make your deepest mistakes, and you fight hardest. <laughs> and so um, it's about repair after rupture so it's about how you repair after a fight it's not about not having the fight Mm. and that you can learn as a family that you fight about because you haven't put the bins out whatever it is but by the time you've cooled down and then you come together and you talk about what was actually going on that you can feel closer Mm. within the family because you understand what you were really upset about which was probably absolutely nothing to do with the bins is that the touchstone that you put at number three because you sort of wanted to get it out of the way quickly? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'll get this one done and then I'll move on to the ones that I feel more... Having fun. Having Elevate fun. Ri- habits to rituals, yeah. 
yep. power dynamics as well, because there are hierarchies and power dynamics in families and they can be upturned by all sorts of different things. And again, that kind of, here's the structure of our family and something can happen and everyone has to sort of rejiggle and refine their Yeah, plate. yeah. Someone dies, someone comes in, someone becomes elevated in their life. You know, there's so many different power dynamics. Mm. It's such... It's such a brilliant book. And I think the thing I like about it is that in a couple of years where there's been so much to be sad about and be unhappy about, and uh, I think that we'll probably see mental health crisis emerge from this. That's going to be the second pandemic. But if... It, we're in it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. But I, I think it's just going to... Do you think it will Escalate. snowball? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But um, one thing, one good thing I'll take away is that this book became possible because, as you say, getting uh, five generations, four generations, these people to comfortably come together on a Zoom call, which, as you say, logistically is far easier than getting people into the same physical space, means that we now have access to and the visibility of these conversations in a way that can be helpful to every single person who reads it whether you read it from start to finish, whether you pick up at the 12 touchstones, whether you look at other appendices or whether you just read one family at a time. I think there's so much value in it. Oh, thank you, Emma. That's so lovely to hear. I mean, I, yeah, I loved writing it and I really hope that anyone reading it would discover aspects of themselves that can allow them to kind of go, ah, oh, that's what's going on and then begin to address it and also be more self-compassionate as a parent um, or as a grandparent. And that's another thing, actually, because I think that's a nice note on which to end. It's just that the, the personal development story, that's constantly ongoing. And anything that you read or learn or observe can help you with that. But this is like a guarantee that you're going to learn something. Oh, thank you. It was, um, well, it's a pleasure talking to you about it. Always, always a pleasure to chat to you. Um, I will put the link to the book, all of the books and your social media and also any up to upcoming events that you might be speaking at or hosting in the show notes. Um, thank you. But thank you so much for coming back, Julia. It's a pleasure. It's lovely to be with you, Emma, and um, to, to be heard by your very um, insightful listeners. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to that episode of The Emma Gunn Show. I do hope you enjoyed it. I appreciate your time hugely. If you did enjoy it and you never want to miss an episode, then please do hit the subscribe button wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. It's also where you get the opportunity to leave a five-star review and a rating for how you feel about the show. And I'd be so grateful if you wouldn't mind leaving one. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Or you can DM me on Instagram and Twitter where I am at Emma Guns. If you fancy chatting to me and thousands of other fellow listeners of the podcast, then click the link to join the Facebook forum. The link to join is in the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode you have to answer a couple of questions but we cannot wait to see you there come over and join the conversation thank you so much for listening i will see you on the next one <laughs>